0: Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode of So What Else. I'm Caitlin. Before we get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to any of you who have gone on the website and sent us a donation. That just helps us so much. You know, podcasts aren't free and it does cost some money to do a podcast well. And that's, you know, what we're trying to do here. We're trying to do it well. So we just really, really deeply appreciate those of you who took the time um, to go on and send us a donation. We don't take it lightly. We appreciate it so much. So we just wanted to thank you guys. Um, so, listen. If you are new here, so what else is a storytelling podcast? And today we have Valerie Cantella on to share her story. Valerie is someone that I met online, and I was really excited and honored to have her come on to so what else and share her story. I tore through her book, which is called Off Script: A Mom's Journey Through Adoption, A Husband's Alcoholism, and Special Needs Parenting. Valerie's story is mind blowing. Even just in that book title, you can tell there's a ton of stuff in there. Um, she talks about her daughter who suffers from reactive attachment disorder, um, her husband um, being an alcoholic, divorce. There, Guys, there, I'm not even saying all of it. There's a lot, a lot, a lot to her story um, and what she's been through and how she's learned to reframe and how she's learned to find redemption in her story and what her life looks like today. It's just, it's a very rich conversation. I felt very encouraged talking to Valerie um, and seeing her outlook. I just think that this is an amazing conversation. Everyone will be able to connect to some aspect of her story. So stay tuned. Valerie, thank you so much for
1: coming on So What Else? Caitlin, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be chatting
0: with you today. I'm so excited. This is so fun. So we kind of, quote unquote, met on the internet. Right. My internet friend now, (laughs) because we're both on uh, Jenna Kutcher's book launch team for her book, How Are You Really? Yes, which is so good. So many great quotes in there. Really amazing. I love her. I just think she's so great.
1: I love her too. I feel like we could go to her farm and play with Coco and her other daughter. I can't remember her name. Quinn, and right? Quinn?
0: Quinn, yes. Yes, and yes, yes. Just such, she's just our people. Totally. Totally. I just I love it's like hard to find people that you feel like are genuine that are Instagram influencers. Like, do you know what I mean? Like it's totally there's such like a formula. Don't you feel like people who are an influencer whatever that even means? There tends to be like a formula for the things that like they post and whatever. But I feel like Jenna and another one. Do you follow the rambling redhead? No, but I have to add that to my list. You have to follow her. They, I get similar vibes from the both of them where they're just kind of like, hi, this is who I am. You know what I mean? Like, whatever. Like, this is this is what my life is. This is who I am. Whatever. Like, I'm not trying to be something that I'm not. And I really love like, it. I love her energy. So that was why I was like, so excited to read her book. And so we connected through that. And I tore through your book last week. Like, for real, such a fast read. I was reading it on my phone. Like at night, I couldn't, like, I was like, I need to go to bed. I need to go to bed. But I kept reading. It really, really was like so well written. It's such a good story. And I'm excited for you to share it with us today.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm excited to talk about the journey because it was such a challenging journey. And I didn't want the book to feel so heavy that Mm -hmm. people didn't want to keep reading.
0: It definitely the, did not because
1: there's a there there is hope in it,
0: and I want people to experience the hope absolutely, absolutely. I mean, like that's like what this podcast is about is I feel like people come on here. we have people come on and share their story, and it always feels so like redemptive to me, you know what I mean? Because there's always something yeah. to learn from everything. But before we dive in, you are calling me from California, right? Yes, I live in Santa Barbara, California, a beautiful <sighs> place to be, and
1: Seventy-two degrees average temperature all year round. I I really am super
0: blessed to live here and be able to go walk at the beach and oh yeah. my god, that is not. I mean, that is just like amazing, Santa Barbara. I've never even been to California.
1: Well, come visit. I have a I have a spare bedroom, and you and your husband are welcome. And we love-
0: would love it. You have no idea. I mean, so we're out here in Jersey. Womp womp. I mean, listen, I love Jersey. I do. I do. But to say like. I'm in West Jersey. And you're like, I'm in Santa Barbara. <laughs> it it lands a little differently.
1: <laughs> well, it's so funny because we'll talk about the adoption story. But when we adopted my daughter from Russia, yeah, a TV show, the soap opera, Santa Barbara was on TV. And in Russia, they would ask us, is that how you actually live? And it, it's like, no, we don't live in a mansion and we don't right. have
0: servants and... Right, right, right. Oh, my gosh. And then, of course, what we have to to represent New Jersey (laughs) is the Jersey Shore, the television show, which it's funny because people love to say, people from Jersey are like, that's so not accurate. It's such a terrible representation of our state. It's not accurate at all. And I'm like, listen, guys, it kind of is accurate of certain parts (laughs) of, you know what I mean? Like, no, not everybody is like that, but it's not so far fetched. It's really not. So I'm sorry. We just might need to own it. But those people that look and talk and act like that are walking around here. So we just need to get comfortable with it. (laughs) Oh, but what are you going to do? I do love the Jersey shore. I love my state. I have pride. It's fine. You know, love Jersey, but anyway. All right. So listen, Valerie, your, there is so much in your book. So it's called Off Script: A Mom's Journey Through Adoption, A Husband's Alcoholism, and Special Needs Parenting. So already, I'm sure people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, that's a lot right there. So listen, we obviously cannot get through all of it today. So this is an encouragement for people. We'll have the, the link in the show notes. Go read it. So you've been through a lot. You have been through a lot. You know, you were di- diagnosed with diabetes when you were young, kidney disease, you were told you probably wouldn't be able to have children, miscarriages, but then you and your husband were blessed with your son, Nick. And then a few years later, you decided to adopt. Let's kind of pick up there with your story. So what kind of led you guys to Russia and to Katie? And like, tell me a little bit about bringing her home and stuff like that.
1: Sure. So my husband was actually adopted and his his family was Russian and we were together. We got together shortly after I was diagnosed with diabetic kidney disease. So every part of our dating relationship was about me not being able to have children likely. And Mm -hmm. that as a married couple, we'd probably adopt. And then when the miracle of my kidneys being healed happened, uh, Then we thought, oh, well, we can have a child, but then Mm -hmm. let's also still keep adoption um, on our minds in the background, just figure out if that's the right next path for us, because it wasn't going to be a good idea for me to have a second child. So we decided on Russia because we thought uh, our kids would look kind of similar. And we went through about a one and a half year process to adopt and uh, actually, my personal experience with Putin is that he stopped adoptions while we were in the middle of the process. He was using oh. it as a political ploy back then, and stopped adoptions and turned off the heat in the orphanages in Vladivostok, no. Russia, where my daughter is from. And these are little teeny babies, super oh. malnourished, that didn't in the middle of winter did not have heated rooms to even be in. It's, it's heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking back then, but now to see what's going on in the world. And that's a whole different episode. Yeah. Oh my That goodness. connection. Yeah. So when we got the piece of paperwork called a referral, we had very little information on Katie mm-hmm. and she was about 15 pounds at, excuse me, she was five pounds, 15 ounces at birth. She was 15 months old when we flew to Russia to adopt her. We went through two trips. And the first trip, we got to see her just a few hours for the whole week we were there. And mm. there was no connection. She was this beautiful little girl with huge brown eyes, um, but so teeny. Mm. And, I mean, I, was, I had been a mother and held my son, but 15 pounds at 16 months is very fragile. yeah. It was, and then we're in the hotel in Russia with this tiled shower and you're trying, you're hoping that you're gonna get warm water to take a shower. I'm trying to give her a bath and hoping that I I won't drop her because she's so fragile. Mm. But we just firmly believed that everything happens for a reason and that God Mm. wouldn't give us more than we could handle. So we went through the adoption process believing that Katie was, intended to be in our family, and Mm -hmm. that with love and nurturing and support, medical care and therapy, she would be fine and thrive. Mm -hmm. So we brought her home. We got home on December 23rd, and it was pretty cool because our first, Katie's first invitation or out coming out to the world was on Christmas Eve at the, we lit the Advent calendar at church and, excuse me, the Advent candle. And so it was just like, oh, our whole family is together and this is the beginning of our life as a family. But as you read, it didn't quite go how I intended and and Katie's needs quickly became more apparent. Uh, She could barely crawl. She had issues with swallowing. The way they feed them in Russia is with a huge tablespoon, like a serving spoon, and they hope that they will be able to absorb the nutrition. And that's part of the reason she was so malnourished is she just she had a problem with her sucking uh, reflux. Mm. So we worked on all of those very practical, basic medical needs initially. But then mm-hmm. a couple months later, we had therapists in our house for occupational therapy, sensory therapy, speech therapy, play therapy, and everything about parenting her was different
0: than parenting Nick. Wait, I, so when you had first adopted her, sorry, but did, when you had first gone there, what information were you given about her? Like, did you know anything like in terms of like medically where she was at other than her being teeny tiny? Like, what did they tell you?
1: They really said uh, she was the fourth live birth of her birth mother. Okay. And they there were phrases in there that, we, our adoption agency told us were well, they just put that in every referral, but looking back at it, it was very scary. Encephalitis and brain issues. And you pretty much assume that every adoption that comes out of Russia, fetal alcohol syndrome is involved. Okay. And, um, but we were so, I don't want to say we were so naive, but we were so naive and just believed firmly that God wouldn't give us what we could handle, couldn't handle. And and our parameters of what we could handle did not include a special needs child. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, well, there's no way she's going to be special needs. And our doctor here, so we had to go for two trips. Our first trip, we took video of her and showed our pediatrician here. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, she may have rickets and she can't put weight on her legs. and But I think with nutrition and love and care, she'll be okay.
0: Okay.
1: So that I mean that was really the extent of what we had access to, mm-hmm. and back then the internet was really this was you know 22 years ago the internet yeah. really wasn't the plethora of information that we have available now. I wish totally. I wish I would have known about reactive attachment disorder and some of the issues associated with children in orphanages and fetal
0: alcohol syndrome. Yeah. Okay, so so you knew a little, but it was like very fuzzy kind of like, and you weren't sure how accurate it would be. You come home and she struggled. Like you kind of thought we're going to get her home and we're going to feed her and love her and cuddle her. And she's going to just catch up with her peers. And that's not okay. what happened.
1: Not what happened. Didn't want to be cuddled. I would tell the ladies in the church nursery, don't pick her up when she cries That is the opposite of what needs to happen. She's so overwhelmed. Mm. I couldn't go to Costco with my two kids to get groceries because she couldn't handle the lights and sounds. Okay. Um, But her brother was, Nick was amazing with her. And he Mm. would just say, come on, Katie, let's do this. And Mm. he really taught her about the world. And in our home, just the two of them, that was really safe. And she started learning and she grew, uh, Five inches and gained 10 pounds in the first year so physically she started catching up Mm -hmm. uh, but some of the background issues we weren't we couldn't have known about that early
0: yeah so when did you first hear the term reactive attachment disorder
1: well, I think it came up. Uh, a friend of my mom's gave me a book called Children Without a Conscience. And and literally, I think she gave me this book maybe three months after we had adopted. And it's about children with reactive attachment disorder, kids that go grow up in situations where they're abused or traumatized, or they've lived in an orphanage and just their inability to bond with their caregivers and their inappropriate attachments. And I didn't find the book helpful because I didn't see that there were solutions. And very few of our providers, at least, knew very much about reactive attachment disorder. And there's just, was not a lot of information. And so we kept doing what we were doing and I'd try holding therapy and I would try counseling and but meanwhile, the reactive attachment is there and then she starts getting these other diagnoses of ADHD and oppositional defiance disorder. And it just became this big jumble of what what's the disorder
0: of the day that we're really treating today? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, oh, that's really that, hard. I, I read in your book that 50 to 80% of adopted children actually have attachment disorders is that because like if they're coming from a situation beginning of their life where they either weren't held enough or there was trauma or whatever like is that what is causing it or are they like born with it do you know what I
1: mean yeah well we know that children thrive when they have a constant stable caregiver that's loving and nurturing them and Mm -hmm. kids that's why when you see kids in NICUs, they're, the nursing staff and the parents are so consistent and concerned about making sure those connections are formed. Yeah. But like Katie, she was born in a baby hospital and then she was transferred to another orphanage and then she was transferred to the orphanage we went to. Mm-hmm. And then we brought her home. And each of those, they're called displacements, impacts their ability to bond. Okay. And so- The person, so I was the primary caregiver and she most reacted to me, meaning she could walk up to you the first day she met you and say, oh, Caitlin, I love you. But then it took her until she was a teenager to actually say, I love you without prompting to me.
0: Oh, that's so hard. I can't even, so she was almost the most resistant to you. Because yes. of her reactive attachment disorder or RAD is, how, is right. what they call it. Yes. That's okay. And now what are, like, what do, you, like you said, there's not a lot of information. Doctors don't really know. What were people coaching you to do with her to make it quote unquote better?
1: I don't feel like I got very much guidance or support. I went to a, a therapist that would have us play together, but we'd be sitting on the floor and she would want us to mimic a family with dolls. Okay. And I would say- I would have the mommy doll and I'd say, hey, Katie, how are you? Let's go do this thing. And Katie wouldn't even be able to have the conversation back. But right. I'm not sure, you know, this the uniqueness of Katie is she has so many different diagnoses. And so I don't know if that was the RAD or if it was the... Autism, which actually wasn't diagnosed till she was in high school, mm-hmm. or if it was the oppositional defiance, or if it was her language delay—I mean, there are just so many moving parts here. It was really hard to figure out. Yeah, and I, I and I am a figure outer. Uh, mm-hmm. I love to research and can get obsessive about my research, uh, but I I just didn't research that much and or what I could find wasn't that helpful. And now, thankfully,
0: there are more more resources available. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand that 100%. But, you know, before we started recording, we both bonded over the fact they were both Enneagram 1s. So it's <laughs> like, I get that, that, like, desire to just, like, just someone just tell me, like, just, like, give me the book, the mm-hmm. how-to guide, and, like, I can read it. Like, I'm a very capable person. Like, I can read it, and I can do it, right? But when you're faced with a situation where there's really – like everyone's kind of scratching their heads, that can be like crushing. And, you know, um, it's certainly not the same situation, but my older brother um, dealt with a lot of mental health issues and things like that. And I think that, you know, when they listen to this, I'm sure my parents will be able to really connect with what you're saying because his whole life— you know, they had them in tons of different doctors, therapies, teachers, counselors, all these different things. And it was a game of what's today's diagnosis. It was. Yeah. There was, you know, oh, it's ADD. Oh, it's OCD. You know, and then, and it was, but it was it would change all the time exactly like which thing was causing which behavior. You know, there was depression. And then he didn't get a diagnosis of Asperger's until high school or college, same thing. So it was like, they dealt with a lot of similar things. Again, not as severe, but just not being exactly sure what they're dealing with, right? And that can be very crushing. Absolutely. And there were so many times I just,
1: really wanted to scream at the professionals and say, I am not a professional Yeah, any of these things. I'm not a a therapist, a doctor. Hey, I'm a communicator. So just tell me what, and I can communicate it. But I don't know what to do. And that was kind of not acceptable. It was really a struggle to to not know what the path forward was. Because like you said, if they had just told me, read this book and go forward, I would have done that.
0: Yeah. Happily. Absolutely. So you struggled to bond with Katie, obviously.
1: Very, very difficult. And I I describe it in in the book as the parenting journey. Like it was like the babysitting journey from hell. It was Mm. so hard and it created a lot of conflict for me internally because I was very close to my son, Nick. And so I had this very, what I would call, typical or normal mothering experience with him and we'd go to the park and I would he would play with the other kids and he'd have play dates and he had friends and I would love to be in his classroom or read a book to him at night and scratch his back whereas Katie it was more like just managing her needs and trying not to rock the boat where she would become emotionally just to lose it because she was very, very sensitive, Mm -hmm. which I can relate. I'm a sensitive person, but she was hypersensitive to to lots of things, noise and sound and being startled and very hard to keep kind of happy. And Mm once she got to to school, she would hold it together at school. But then when she'd come home, I got the worst of it. And and the way I grew up was that... uh, thinking that you got what you deserved or everything happens for a reason that, that record old record played in my head all the time. And so I thought, well, it's my fault. Mm -hmm. I've done something wrong or I'm not good enough. And so it's my job to fix it. And Mm -hmm. because other people didn't see this behavior to the extent that, that I had it, it was really hard to
0: feel supported and that there wasn't something wrong with me. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, it's interesting because you said, you know, she would hold it together at school, you know, so I'm sure there were times where you felt like these people probably think I'm crazy. Like when oh, I absolutely. say XYZ is going on at home, they're probably thinking I think that she's blowing this out of proportion because that's not
1: absolutely what absolutely. <sighs> and I and I write about that even that it wasn't until my daughter was in high school or actually right before she was in high school that my parents, she lived with my parents for a a week or 10 days or so. And they came to us afterwards and said, we are so sorry that we did not understand what your life was like. And it Mm -hmm. wasn't until she was totally, I mean, my parents lived very close to us and my daughter was very comfortable with them, but she held it together until that week that she was actually living with them and her full-blown behaviors of screaming and crying and being obstinate. It's interesting that the person that she reacts to most is me. The second Mm -hmm. person is my mom, not her dad. Yeah, that's interesting.
0: Yeah. Did you ever feel like you guys had made the wrong decision? Like, did you ever feel like, clearly, you know, we kind of felt like God was leading us to adopt, like from Russia and and this girl. And did you ever feel like oh, I think we messed up. Like, I think we made a mistake here.
1: Yes, I, and it's hard to say that because that's just another layer of revealing my shame and imperfection about like, I'm not, people would say to me, oh, you did such a wonderful thing. You rescued this child from Russia. And I said, you know it's wonderful that you think that we just wanted a second child and the fact that she is rescued from a russian orphanage is a bonus mm-hmm. but it was really my selfish desire to have two kids that mm-hmm. drove that experience and i just didn't feel i didn't i never felt like we could give her up mm-hmm. um not because we had a connection but because i didn't want her trauma to continue in being placed in another situation. And I didn't want to answer the questions of, well, she was such a cute little girl. Why didn't Mm. you keep her? You have this, you know, nice family of four. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I still wrestle with that today. Yes, we rescued her from an orphanage. She's alive. Mm -hmm. But her life is very small. Mm -hmm. And
0: it's hard for me to accept that her life is always going to be small. But, you know, I think that that's really beautiful what you said that, cause you know, failed adoptions, like that's a thing. Like mm-hmm. there, like, that happens like where people adopt a kid and then it's like deemed a failed adoption and it doesn't work out. But the fact that you said, you know, I didn't, it's not that I felt like such a connection to this girl that I was like, Oh, I could never like give her up because I love her so much. We have this like fuzzy bond, but you said you didn't want to be, to add to her trauma. You didn't want her to be like, put in another place where then her trauma would be increased. And I think that that's like the ultimate sign of love. You know what I mean? That like you are literally getting nothing back. You know what I mean? Like with your son, Nick, sure, you're the parent, you know, so you're doing most of the work, but it's like, you know, he's saying he loves you. He's hugging you. He's like, you know, you have a, you have a bond. There's a give and take there. You know what I mean? It's, it feels rewarding. But with Katie, it never felt rewarding, you know, which I feel like is really the ultimate act of love that you're like, I'm doing this, even though like there's, I don't get anything back from this, you know? Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, so thank you for saying that. It yeah. makes it a little less uh, painful to think about that. Yeah, it was just mother motherhood, Mother's Day is a hard time. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: and I just acknowledge that for for everyone for whom motherhood hasn't just been this
0: happy hallmark Instagram worthy Mother's Day, it it can be really hard. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And then I think it's like, you know, motherhood in general. Yeah. Mother's Day brings up, I think, so much for so many people. And then the, the layer of adoption, I think that, you know, it's easy to hear a lot of like, really precious fuzzy stories about adoption and to feel like, well, that really wasn't our story, you know? Right. And like, wh- like, that's that's not what happened for us. You know what I mean? But that doesn't mean that you weren't meant to be Katie's mom, you know? Right. So <sighs> that's just, yeah. there's so much there. So, okay, fast forward. High school-ish, when Katie was in high school— she ran away. Tell us about that day.
1: Yeah, so actually she was in eighth grade and Nick was in high school, just one year ahead of her. And her dad and I both were going off to our jobs and we, we let Katie ride her bike to junior high because it was literally one mile straight from our house to the junior high. And there were other kids in the neighborhood that rode. So she, I went to work and my husband, saw Katie off and he went to work. And then I got a call saying, Hey, Katie isn't at school today. Can you confirm her absence? And I said, no, she, she went to school and they said, okay. And, and called me back a few minutes later and said, we can't find her. So I said, okay, well, I'll be over in a minute. And I text her dad or call her dad and say, you, Katie went to school, right? And he said, yeah, I saw her ride her bike off and, Anyway, so it sets off this whole scary situation of, I thankfully, we both, her dad and I both worked just a few miles from the school and our house. So I went to the house. He went to the school and went by the park where she would ride her bike through and didn't see her or find anything. we go to the school. I had called my colleague, the sheriff's deputy, and I just said, what do I do? My daughter's not at school. And he said- is there any possibility that she's run away? How are things at home? Mm-hmm. And it never even occurred to me that she could have run away because this is a girl that has, really doesn't have any friends. She hasn't, we manufactured the friendships for the most part. Mm-hmm. She's never been really, the, her riding her bike to school is the most independent she has. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: I said, well, you know, she's been, kind of depressed lately and, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but she's always kind of low energy and Mm -hmm. not, not extremely happy. She's special needs. And I'm trying to explain to him, but I go home and I don't find Katie. I do find her cell phone. And then I go to school and the sheriff's deputy friend meets us there. And it's just this kind of blur of, oh my gosh, our daughter's missing. Did someone take her or, did she run away? Yeah. So we're standing outside with two deputies and they're just about to go look for her. And my husband's phone rings and it's a a shelter that's called to say, are you Katie's dad? And we have Katie and she's safe. She had finally been able to express in running away her severe misery and anxiety and depression and We had just been getting along. We'd been getting by thinking, oh, this is just junior high moodiness. This is Katie as she is all the time, but Mm -hmm. exacerbated because she's in junior high and having hormones. And it really felt like the beginning of, I can't even figure out the word to describe it, but a huge break in
0: there was the life before Katie ran away and the life after Katie ran away. Yeah, you said in your book, That after she ran away, you said the crumbling of the facade had begun. Yes. Tell me about that. What do you mean by that?
1: I think before that, we were just trying to hold everything together so that on the outside, we looked like we were just living the American dream. Yeah. Happy on the outside to other people. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Successful, you know, Nick... And Katie were both cute kids. Mm-hmm. We went to church. We were involved in our community. We were PTA people. You know, doing mm-hmm. all the right things, and everyone loved the idea that oh, we rescued this child. Oh, Katie, so lucky to have you. But they didn't know the tension and the our house the the level of tension in our house. It was extreme, and mm-hmm. it felt like we were on one of those balance boards that has four corners. Yeah. And the ball in the middle. And Nick and I were balancing what Paul, Katie's dad, and Katie were experiencing emotionally at any time. Mm. So if one thing moved, Nick and I were balancing that emotion.
0: Yeah. And
1: now that Katie's run away, we called my parents when we first uh, knew she was not at school and asked them to pray. And then they were involved to an extent that first day, but we finally reached out to our prayer chain at church and said, Mm -hmm. this has gotten to a devastating place. We're really, we don't know what, we're trying to figure out the path forward and ask people to pray. And that was kind of our first acknowledgement of everything is not happy at
0: the house. Yeah. Okay. So that was your first time really publicly telling people like, hi, things are kind of falling apart here. Right. Right.
1: Because, okay, yeah. because everyone else experienced Katie in the best version of Katie. Totally. And this was our, we knew that we were at a breaking point that yeah. we
0: we really couldn't keep this burden to ourselves. So to clarify, she like researched on her own a shelter and like didn't didn't go to school, got on the a bus and found her way to this abuse shelter and went there and was like, I want to be here.
1: Yeah, so the craziness of this is that, so Katie had a girl at school, Judy, who had parents that had been abused, abusing her. And okay. somehow Katie and this girl, they were both kind of quirky girls connected. And Judy told Katie about the shelter. So Katie listened to everything Judy said and she got on a public bus and she had to transfer the bus at least once to walk to a house that did not have a there was no sign on the door that said right. this is the shelter it was just it's like an a safe address. house it's a safe house Ugh. and she did all this without her phone she had never gotten on a public bus she had packed her backpack full of clothes and snacks and things she thought she'd need so somehow there is this executive processing function that we never knew she had that right shows itself every once in a while. It's like this miracle of, oh, Katie is more competent than we thought,
0: right. So that's like trippy. like that the runaway thing is like shocking on two levels for you as a mom that you're like, I cannot believe that she ran away. but also, I'm like mildly impressed that she had like the mental capacity to get herself there. Like how. completely, Yeah. We, we
1: were seriously so shocked. Yeah. When we were telling my parents, none of us could believe Katie got on a bus. She knew how to use money. She didn't know how to count money. She yeah. didn't know how to do all these things that most junior hires know how to do. She at 13 was probably more like an eight or nine year old. and. So we were like, oh, she stepped up to the challenge. We don't like the challenge that she took, but she does have some functioning
0: beyond what we knew. That's okay. So, you kind of mentioned that like your family history sort of like you think about it like pre Katie running away and post Katie running away cuz pre you know she was she was living at home with you you guys were functioning to a degree and everyone kind of thought you were this perfect family post her running away you finally were able to be more public with the fact that like look this is like we really are struggling here with her and then correct me if i'm wrong but she never like fully fully lived at home After the running away incident, that was what started like a whole string of like living at different places, like for therapies and counseling and things like that.
1: Right. So she did that day. She stayed at the shelter for a few days while we did some family therapy. And she came home for a couple of weeks, but she wasn't going to school. And then she lived with my parents temporarily. And then we got her into residential treatment, which Mm -hmm. she went to four different treatment facilities in four years. Because you could, the first place said, she's more than we can handle. Her needs are much more significant. But we got her into a place for children with reactive attachment disorder, which at that point, there was only one uh, home in the whole United States that Uh. actually treated reactive attachment disorder. And it happened to be in Missouri. And then she got everything she could out of that placement and went to a different Uh, home, primarily to deal with the autism that was Mm -hmm. in Provo, Utah. Okay. So, but let me paint the picture a little bit, just because she wasn't in our home. It was not like it was a vacation because we were doing, her dad and I had individual therapy calls with her. We had family therapy calls, and then we would get these calls from different providers there uh, about incident reports and it's not just your kid didn't show up for school today or your kid got a broad grade. It was your child kicked the, kicked the staff and she got placed on a hold and she's Mm -hmm. been laying on the floor for three hours. And Mm -hmm. one of the boundaries I finally set was I just said, you know, I can't, I cannot handle getting incident reports every day. Mm -hmm. It's, there's nothing I can do when she's a thousand miles away or whatever. I'm not the professional. Yeah. So unless she's physically hurt or she's physically hurt someone else or something bigger than she's kicked a staff, which is a big deal. Let me just be clear. That's a big deal. Mm -hmm. But in the scope of what she's doing, um, that was not a big deal compared to some of the other things that happened. And so I just said just... I can't, you can't call me every day
0: and tell me this. Yeah, absolutely. I get that. So, all right, let's transition a little bit to talking about Paul. So, you mentioned before that in your family, you felt like you and Nick were kind of always waiting for either Katie or your husband, Paul, to kind of do something, like lash out emotionally, basically. Right, right. And so talk to me about that, because this is an insane amount of stress that you guys were under. Tell me about Paul, tell me about your marriage. Like, how were you handling the stress of all of us? Right.
1: Well, so Paul and I met at a Christian college called Westmont, and Mm. I had this very idyllic family, but he grew up in an alcoholic household, Mm. and... He said, I'll never become my dad. And I said, great, done deal. We can Wonderful. get married then. You know, perfect. Mm-hmm. We're, our little script life is going to be great. And, but over the years of our marriage, he started drinking more and more. And with Katie, with the situation with Katie, it just exacerbated the drinking. And and when I say that he just drank more and more, he had a very high stress high powered job. Mm-hmm. And he went to it every day and he did a great job. And then he'd come home and we'd eat dinner and he'd drink a martini and fall asleep on the couch. And that suddenly became the routine. So he was a high functioning, very high functioning alcoholic whose life in his mind probably seemed pretty good. Yeah. Um, But so as he drank more, I got more controlling. I tried to micromanage everything in the household, even, you know, how were our file drawers filed and was our silverware drawer clean and perfect? And I loved the magic eraser because any mark that ended up in our household, I would go around and I'd get those marks out. And Mm -hmm. I, I laugh now because I actually still love magic erasers, but it's,
0: it's a wonderful, wonderful tool.
1: It's a wonderful invention, but not a good thing for people that are in the controlling stage of life. And so we were great. We, we were both type a high functioning, get stuff done you know, if you need to run something, you get us together and we sure. can, can run stuff. But we were like two trains on parallel tracks. We were not connected except in the fact that the we were the only two people that knew what it was like to be living our lives. And mm-hmm. with Katie, it was so hard. And um, yeah, so our marriage was, was our whole goal in marriage was to live the American dream together. And we thought we would be involved in our church and be good at our jobs and have two kids and a dog and live in a nice house and that was the extent of what we wanted for our life love yeah love god love our families and serve others mm-hmm. uh, i guess the serve others was my part of it and mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm.
0: so his alcoholism was becoming harder and harder to hide. Like I I remember reading in your book that you said, you know, like for a long time, it was like, you know, he'd come home, drink, fall asleep. And you were kind of like, like, this is, it feels like it's getting more and more. And then it was getting to where it was like, he was doing stuff that was like nuts. And you were just like, this is, you have a problem. Like this is like really gotten out of control but you never for so long you were like I will not get a divorce. Why was that? Like you were not that was not something that was on your mind for a really long time.
1: Yeah, I grew up in a household where and, a, and in a church community where divorce was not accepted. That was never the answer. So I never even would had considered that that was a possibility and in the craziness if I could paint a picture, I had this little walk in closet where I used to go and sit at night when it was really bad. And I would sit there and cry so that no one else could hear me. And I would be like, okay, God, what I have done, all the things that I thought you wanted me to do. And yet my life is a disaster. My da- daughter's in treatment, my mm-hmm. husband. I could not even say the words as an alcoholic. My husband drinks too much. The only way out of this marriage that I see is for him to drive drunk into a tree and die. Mm. Like that to me was the only solution to the craziness of my life.
0: (sighs) That's a very lonely place to be. Now, were you able, could you tell anybody that? Like, were you able to be honest with anybody about the place you were in?
1: Nobody knew. Mm. I mean- I am close to my parents and they they had they knew that things were not great but they had no idea because I I felt so ashamed like this was my fault and I had caused this I had somehow in my very thorough analysis of life as it was some I had somehow missed something mm. and it was my fault and Now I look at myself and I say, how on earth could I have thought that? How would I have caused his drinking? How did I, I didn't cause Katie's disabilities and diagnoses and I did the best I could the whole time. But, you know, that's, that's kind of the mindset that you get in when you're married to an alcoholic or you're in codependency
0: Mm -hmm. and. Yeah. It was, it was so lonely It was so lonely. What, what was the breaking point for you? Like what caused you to finally realize that you needed to separate from Paul?
1: Yeah. So about 18 years into our marriage, I was at a therapist and she said, your husband may be an alcoholic. She gave me a pamphlet about Al-Anon and I Mm -hmm. left bawling Mm -hmm. and I went home and I, asked him if he would go on a walk with me and I kind of confronted him and he said, I'm not an alcoholic. He just got mad, which was his his MO. And for the next, I don't know, eight months, I thought about that, but I didn't do anything. And I was like, I'm not going to Al-Anon. This is not my problem. This is his problem. Yeah. But, and, and there's still all this Katie stuff going on. So I am barely, you know, I'm barely keeping it together. And but it was on a Good Friday, uh, Friday night. I was watching a movie with my husband, and he, and our son Nick was sitting on the chair, and he was passed out on the couch. And he woke up, and he started getting angry, and he threw his phone, and then he went and got his computer, and he threw his computer, pushed over a chair, and it. And he thankfully he left. And at that moment, I just knew this is this cannot continue, and I mm-hmm. saw. Nick's reaction to this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Nick had started after Katie went to treatment, Nick stopped wanting to be at our house. Um, -hmm. because I think it became obvious that Paul's drinking was getting out of control and, you know, it's kind of embarrassing. You bring your friends over, your dad's passed out on the couch and it's seven o'clock and, um, so he had, his coping skill was to be away or our garage was a man cave and we had set it up so the guys could hang out there. And, but that night I said to Nick, and he's, I think a junior in high school at this point, And I said, I'm going to ask your dad to move out tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Will you be there with me? Because I'm not sure how I will react. And it, Paul had never been physically violent with me, but that kind of throwing the computer and the phone. yeah. St- Made me feel scared, like this is yeah. getting out of control. And at this point, Nick is almost six feet tall. And I say, will you be there with me? And he said, absolutely. And mm-hmm. it was like everything I had ignored for all those years finally broke through my brain. Mm-hmm. And and I just said, this is what I need to do. There's a, actually a cool quote, a good quote in Jenna's Kutcher's book, How Are mm-hmm. You Really?, where she says, Sometimes we move through life not knowing who we are because we don't even know how to feel. Mm. And I felt like that night reflected, I am starting to acknowledge that I need to know how to feel. How do I feel about this? Is this okay? Is this safe? Is this healthy for Nick? And um, so the next day I asked him to move out and that was the last, he he never came home that night. The next night I asked him to move out And he did without a fight. And I went to tell my parents and they were shocked that at what my life had become.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you feel like, did you feel shame? You know, like now Now I'm not hiding it. Like we were kind of hiding it for a while, then Katie ran away. And so people kind of saw that like, okay, it's not as perfect as we, you know, want them to think that it is. And now there's a divorce. Like, Did you just, did you feel ashamed? Were you embarrassed or were you proud and empowered? Like, how did you feel? Yeah,
1: definitely not proud and empowered. I felt a huge amount of shame and unworthiness of, Mm. wow, this is not how I thought my life was going to go. And now I'm 45 years old. I'm the first person in my family to get divorced. Mm. And people at church would say, oh, well, are you guys going to go to counseling? And I, we, we went to a counselor that we had seen before and Paul said, will you take me back if I get sober? And I said, only if you figure out who you are. Mm -hmm. And even though I didn't know it at that moment, that was a critical moment because he ended up coming out about seven months later (sighs) and I wasn't surprised. But really it was one of those other things of I think I probably knew at some point in my heart,
0: mm-hmm. but it
1: was too scary to even think the thought. Because what would that mean about me if I had not only an alcoholic husband, but now I had an alcoholic gay ex-husband. Yes. So I'm a failure because I picked the wrong guy. I accepted an alcoholic marriage. And now I'm the first person in my family to be divorced.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I was shocked. Like when I read your book and you got to that part where like Paul came and told you, like I met someone like, and it's a man, like, and I'm with him. And like, I can't even imagine like how on earth did you process that? Well, through the grace of God, <laughs> yeah. um, I think one of the
1: blessings of how I'm wired is that people can say things to me and I just kind of go into emergency management mode uh-huh. and don't overreact and just kind of be like, okay.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then I melt down afterwards. And sure. so when when he told me that and I said, I'm not surprised and I'm, I'm happy for you that you found someone. And mm-hmm. there were a lot of snipey... Critical, not so sure. nice things that I could have said that I will admit went through my head later. Of course. But it really felt you know, now I have the the lens of retrospect, and I'm really happy for him that he's kind of figured out who he is and mm-hmm. he is can be a in a happy, healthy, I'm assuming, relationship. Mm-hmm. And but it it actually said made me have a lot more feelings about me. Like what's, I just reaffirm that what's wrong with me? Yeah. Why did I end up with this crazy life yeah. of all these things that I never thought could even happen in a life? I mean, in my family of origin, the four of us, my parents and my brother and I, I would say the biggest hiccup in our life growing up was when I became diabetic. And it was right. like, okay, I'll get healthy. and
0: mm-hmm, But mm-hmm. we
1: did not have any... Drug or alcohol abuse, no right. mental health issues. Um, like I, I we had a really blessed life, and so it never even occurred to me that my life could be
0: anything other than the script that I mm-hmm. had that I had lived and learned from. Yeah. now, tell us about Nick, okay, so obviously, like you said, the Katie stuff the Paul stuff, and then there's Nick. And like you said, he had started to, you know, not want to be home as much because there was just a lot of stress there. Um, When did you start to notice with him, like something's not right here?
1: Yeah, so it was after Paul moved out, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. It'll just be Nick and I. We've always gotten along pretty well and been close. And Mm -hmm. we weren't as close, but he just started... Not wanting to surf and skate, which were things that he loved. And he exhibited signs of depression, which ironically, having gone through all the emotional stuff with Katie and her depression and anxiety, I didn't see it in Nick. Right. I just, I wrote it off to saying, oh, his his sister's been in treatment. His dad and mom just got divorced. His dad just came out, which has got to feel horrible as a high school boy and our life feels a little chaotic. So of course he's feeling this way. I'm feeling this way. Totally. Um, but I, I wasn't depressed. I was just getting through it. And so he just stopped doing the things he loved and I missed it until he decided that swallowing a fistful of pills plus, uh, was the way to deal with it. And, um, his girlfriend told me, and we went to the ER, and I spent Mother's Day in the hospital while he was coming out of, I think it was a medically induced coma, mm. and wondering, really, God, how could you allow this? Because yeah. I had in my mind that, okay, God, you're going to give me a Katie experience, which is super hard. And then you're going to allow me to have a Paul marriage experience, which is also really hard. But I got to have one good and easy thing. And so that obviously has to be Nick because he was a miracle baby. Mm -hmm. So he's got to have this miracle happy ending. He has to be my easy one. And sitting there in the hospital and realizing that Nick was very depressed and had gotten to this point was just devastating. I felt like there was nothing left for me to cling to.
0: Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, it was, yeah, brutal. I mean, it's so crazy because I totally knew what you meant. Like when you were talking about how, you know, I felt like, okay, like Katie, that was like, That was my hard child, right? Like I'm going to have to like, this is going to be like a hard thing for me. And then, oh, yikes. Okay. All this stuff with Paul, obviously God's going to give me like an easy thing. And like, that's going to be Nick, right? Like we always, I think that as humans, like, I think everybody does that, right? Like you go through a hard thing and then you kind of think, okay, well, at least like check that was my thing. You know, that that was my hard thing and everything else is going to be smooth sailing. And it's like, no one ever promised that. Like no one ever said that that's how it's going to go, that you're going to get your one hard thing and get to move on or your two hard things or whatever. You know, and we do have this thing that we always say, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. God's not going to give you more than you can handle. And it's like, we kind of trick ourselves into thinking like, oh, okay. So then I'm not going to have to handle too much. You know what I mean? Like- And it's just not true.
1: Right. Absolutely not true. And what we think we can handle is, okay, so let's say that is true. God won't give us more than we can handle. It's Mm -hmm. really not about what we think we can handle. It's like God walking alongside us and allowing us to Handle whatever
0: comes our way, what he allows us to come our way. Mm -hmm. You said Um, in the book, which I loved, you said, I started to reframe that thought, like from God's not going to give me more than I can handle to, I. you said, I decided that God gave us what he wanted to handle through us. And our job was to rely on him. Absolutely. And I think that's an amazing reframe.
1: Well, I was thinking about it actually today, um, the idea of, What if I had just accepted that everything in my life was just going to be what it was? Like Mm. I was going to go through this really hard marriage, have a really difficult child, but that was the best my life could be. And if all this stuff did not happen, I wouldn't have this amazing, free, authentic whole life that I have today. And I have, I'm having a completely different experience in my marriage now. So yeah, thank you. God that you allowed this or or for those, you know, higher power, whatever you want to call it. I, I am never want to go through that again. Don't get Mm -hmm. me wrong, but I am so
0: grateful that I get to be a different person through these experiences. Absolutely. And so you, a few years later met your now husband, Tom, who was actually in recovery from alcoholism. Am I right? Yes. And so he had been in
1: and out of reco- sobriety for probably 20 years mm-hmm. and I met him on a dating app and when I first met him it was we just had this connection and I was like wow this guy is someone that I actually might want to get to know and learned he was in recovery and I thought ah oh, red flag yeah. do yeah. I really want to do this again yeah but I had never been in a relationship with someone in recovery i had only been in a relationship with someone that had been an alcoholic and yeah and i had a therapist say to me do you have to make a decision today about mm. whether you stay with this guy and so i would ask myself that it really became a a frequent thought in my thought process of do i have to make a decision today or can i get more information and mm. she she would say all information is good information and it, and it really was because thinking back to my marriage with Paul, I really questioned my judgment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because I'm actually, I, I would say one of my best qualities is I have a really good judgment, mm-hmm. but then I have this black eye or whatever you want to call it of marrying someone that was an alcoholic and then gay. So how what yeah. does that say about my judgment? Sure. So I really questioned my judgment, but she said all information is good information. So just take the information and keep moving forward if you think it's okay. And I started liking him and then I fell in love with him. And, and then we got married and uh, he celebrated seven years of sobriety this year. And our lives together are all about helping other people and growing and being the best versions of ourselves individually and then ourselves together. And I am so so grateful because I feel like our relationship is so emotionally deep, and uh, it, it's just so unlike what I've experienced any other time in my life. And so, yeah, it's if I if I didn't go through all that, I wouldn't have met him, and we wouldn't have this life.
0: It is so it's so crazy to me. Like that is really, that is such a cool cool story, right? That it's like you would think, you know, like you said, you, you see this guy's profile on a dating app. And as soon as you find out, Oh, like he's, you know, he's sober. Like you would think you would just be like, Nope. Like I can't touch that with a 10 foot pole, like not going there. I love that advice from your therapist. though. like, do you have to make a final decision today? Like, you know what I mean? Like, you're not getting married today. You just met the man, you know? Like, right. you can explore this and all information is good information. I love that. I really do love that. And I think how beautiful the two of you together, the life you're building with all of the hardship you guys have in your past and you are using it to help other people.
1: Well, I really like to think of it as the beauty from the broken pieces because there are Mm -hmm. so many things in our lives that we've experienced that seemed really broken and ugly at the time. And now to see those things coming together and our life is this beautiful mosaic of all those broken things. And individually, they're not very pretty, but together it makes this beautiful vessel of color and uniqueness. And um, so, yeah, it's amazing.
0: Why do you think that it is so important for you to share your story like through your book and on this podcast? like why is it important for you to share it?
1: Well, I think there have to be other people that were like me that grew up thinking that there's a formula or a script for the life If you do X, y, and Z, you'll have a blessed and easy life and mm-hmm. I really feel passionate about the fact that it's not our fault if life doesn't go the way we want it doesn't mean that we're less than or unworthy and mm-hmm. um you know, this is, it's just life. I There's this great quote, and you know from the book that I start every chapter with a quote, but I, mm-hmm. I'm really into quotes. And there's this quote from Karen Casey, which says, joy and sorrow are analogous to the ebb and flow of the ocean tide. They are natural rhythms, and we are mellowed by their presence when we accept them as necessary to our very existence any pain today guarantees an equal amount of pleasure if I willingly accept them both. Mm. And I look at that, and I wish I knew that when I was younger, that there's just an ebb and flow to life. Mm -hmm. I didn't, our life was always either neutral or good as I was growing up. And so I thought if my life isn't neutral or good, then it's bad or it's really bad and there's something wrong. But really- I think most people go through stuff in life and that's just life. And Mm -hmm. so the goal of life isn't to avoid all the hardship and hurt. It's to learn from those difficult experiences and use those to help other people. Yeah,
0: absolutely. What would you say to someone who might be listening to this and identifying with a certain part of your story. Maybe they feel like they're drowning in parenting, you know? Like maybe they just feel like they have a kid that they are parenting that they they don't know which end is up. Or maybe there's mental health issues in the home or alcoholism or whatever. What would you say to someone going through some of this stuff?
1: On, on a high level, if you happen to be a perfectionist and you're going through all that stuff, mm-hmm. I would say take, well, I used my perfection as a a coat of armor against Mm -hmm. the world. Like if I could keep everything perfect enough, it would protect me. But I found that in being more authentic and transparent, my life is much more whole. Mm -hmm. But on a practical level, whatever you're going through, there is someone else that understands and there's a group of people that understands. And so find that group.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I, as a young mom, I didn't have a mom's group that I was a part of. And once I got to be a part of a mom's group, I was the leader. So mm-hmm. of course I'm not getting the support as much as I probably could have used it. I later in life found um, the national Alliance of mental illness NAMI, and they have okay. 600 chapters in, Cal- in the United States And NAMI really helps families and individuals with mental illness. And that's a great support group. Mm -hmm. If you're in the recovery sphere, Al-Anon is great. Mm -hmm. I would Mm -hmm. just say, don't let your um, ego get in the way of finding support. Mm -hmm. And I would be more than happy for people to reach out to me. I love to be of service and talk to people that are going through stuff, even if Even if you just need someone to listen Mm -hmm. um, or to help provide some resources for you and whatever you're going through.
0: You are an inspiration. I think that there's people listening to this that are gonna think, oh my goodness. Like if I went through one of the things on her list, I would be like in the fetal position on the ground. You know what I mean? And you, diabetes, kidney disease, everything that you went through with Katie Everything you went through with Paul, everything you went through with Nick. I mean, it's astounding, but here you are saying, you know what? I want to share my story to see that if if it could bring encouragement to somebody else so that they know that they're not alone, so that they know they can get through it. It's kind of changed your, it's helped you to realize like things that you believed that maybe really aren't true. It's like something we made up and it's helped you, like you said, realize like, you don't need to be perfect all the time. And you can admit when things are falling apart and you can be your true authentic self. And I just, I love that. I love that you and your husband, your focus is just to help others that have gone through things that that are going through things that you guys have gone through. And I think who better to help others than someone who's been through that exact thing, you know, who, who knows better about raising a child with special needs than someone who has done that, you know? Um, So is there anything that you feel like is really kind of like that guides you like a way that you live your life?
1: Yeah. So I have a phrase that I think was from a sermon, but that I've kind of taken as my own. I will look forward. I will trust God. Today is a new day. And I love the idea that every day is a new day and that the sun shines in the morning Mm -hmm. and it goes down at night and you get the opportunity to start over or do have a new
0: start to the day. I I love the continual refreshment of that. I love that. And you know what I also love about that is just like back to that quote that you shared, that I shared earlier from your book, that it's not so much like, God won't give us more than we can handle. It's that God gives us what he wants to handle through us. You know, and I think that look look at your story and look at how much you've been through and look at how much God has handled through you you know, and how you're using it for good. And I I just love that. It's a new day. I'm going to trust God because... He's
1: got me this far.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I just think that it's beautiful. So just tell us before we go, how are Katie and Nick doing today?
1: Well, I'm so grateful. Uh, Nick is 24 and he gets to live his best life uh, as a carpenter, but he surfs as much as possible up in Santa Cruz. And... We have I can't wait to read the card he just gave me for Mother's Day. We have an amazing relationship yeah. had that we wouldn't have if he hadn't gone through his stuff and I wouldn't have worked on my recovery. He mm-hmm. is he is clean. Uh he's been clean for 6 years, which yeah. is pretty amazing when he yeah. was 18 to to make that decision. Absolutely. And Katie is stable and stable is really the gold star standard for Katie. Yeah. And she texted me out of the blue the other day and showed me some of her artwork. And so that was really cool that she reached out because it's not her natural natural approach. And then I have a bonus son, my stepson, Adam, who mm-hmm. is 18 and a wonderful kid. And uh, it's wonderful to have a totally different parenting experience with him. So Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, I bet. I, yeah, it's really oh. nice. That's amazing. I love that. So tell us, where can we find you online? Where can we find your book? Tell us all the things. So you can find me on my website, ValerieCantella.com.
1: I'm on Instagram at valeryjcantella.com. And then you can buy the book at any online retailer. The easy link is tinyurl forward slash off script. Sorry. Okay tinyurl.com forward slash off script. Okay. But you can also find it at uh, Barnes and Nobles and Walmart and everywhere else books are sold.
0: Awesome. I love that. All right. So I can't let you go without asking what's your favorite snack right now?
1: Oh, my favorite snack. I love the 94% fat-free kettle
0: corn, microwave popcorn. Oh, I love kettle corn. I I think I could eat that every single day of my life and be happy. It's so good. My favorite is that Boom Chicka Pop. Do you ever have oh, yeah. that? So oh my good. gosh. Like the salty sweet Boom Chicka Pop. Oh, at Costco, they sell a bag of it that's like literally like the length of my entire leg. And it's like, you think to yourself like, well, we could never eat all of this. But it's like, no, no, you will. You will go through yes. it. Yes. I have to buy popcorn
1: in the individually packaged bags or the microwave bags, because I do not have enough self-control
0: to not eat the whole bag. It's so good. It's so, so, so good. I love popcorn. That's a great one. Yeah. Well, Valerie, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for sharing your story, for being so vulnerable. And thank you for using your story to help other people. I think it's amazing. Thanks, Caitlin. Great to be here. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, if you want to toss us a five-star rating, I would love you forever. Check us out next week for another new episode. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at so.what.else. Editing and all that stuff by Matt Carpenter with Parable Productions.